Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is New York Times bestselling author Lori Holt Anderson. Her first historical fiction novel, Fever 1793, received multiple state and national awards and is used in school curriculums around the country. Chains, the first book of her trilogy set during the Revolutionary War, was a National Book Award finalist, received the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction, and received the ALA Best Book for Young Adults Award. She discusses the challenges of teaching history and slavery in a meaningful way through fiction. And now, Miss Anderson and Dr. Bradburn. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the director of the Washington Library, Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington, here at beautiful Mount Vernon. And I'm delighted to have with me today Lori Hals Anderson, uh, who is a well-known author uh, and uh, prize-winning author, and and uh, she's here for a program. Welcome to Mount Vernon. Oh, thank you so much, Doug. It is an absolute delight to be here. Well, so the education staff here uh, at Mount Vernon has been just uh, tripping with excitement to get you here uh, because uh, your work is so beloved, and for somebody uh, uh, you know who who you know, tries to make history interesting for students. Uh, it's just such a, a great pleasure to welcome, uh, you know, historian, author like yourself. Well, golly, I, I don't often get referred to as a historian, so <laughs> I am incredibly honored by that. Thanks. Well, there's a lot of research in this book. So I'm holding Chains by Laurie Hulse Anderson. Uh, if those of you out there who know her oeuvre, uh, it's a very large and Successful, but change is part of a trilogy. Yes, sir. Of uh, historical novels about uh, Isabel. Yes. Uh, and her adventures in the American Revolutionary War. Yes, sir. Uh, and the the second volume is Forge. Forge. That's told from her friend's point of view. Okay. Curzon. Young man, Corzon. Yes. Yeah. And then the uh, the final one is Ashes, which just came out. Just came out a few months ago. Okay, so here we are. It's December of 2016. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and congratulations. Thanks, that. thanks. Yeah. So you're here at Mount Vernon tonight. You're going to speak to a, no a lot of teachers, local teachers that we have. I'm, uh, this, is, this is dream come true time for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I started, I hadn't set out to write about the American Revolution. This book was actually a result of the work I did years ago on my first historical novel called Fever 1793. Yeah. That's the yellow fever epidemic in Philly in 1793. George Washington is president, Thomas Jefferson is secretary of state. Uh, in the course of researching that book, though, I, I stumbled onto facts about slavery in the colonial period and in the Federalist period, uh, slavery in the North, mm. that they never taught me when I was a child. Uh, so that was about 23 years ago, yeah. um, and that was the beginning of the journey that brought me here. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, the fever story in 1793 is really a phenomenal one, you know, at a time when you know, that whole uh, city gets swept up oh in my the gosh. terror of the, of the disease and the heroic stories of the African-American community in Philadelphia, but the, the doctors who stayed behind and, you know, as everybody fled, it's just an extraordinary thing. 
as the, the, the top government officials fled. I yeah. believe when uh, President Washington left Mount Ver or left Philadelphia that summer, he left because Martha wouldn't leave without him, mm. they say. Um, and I believe that on his way back here to Mount, Mount Vernon, he stopped in, became Washington, D.C., to lay the cornerstone of the Capitol building mm. or to be present at the ceremony. Yeah. That is a crucial moment in Washington's presidency. Uh, Adams uh, writes a famous letter to Jefferson, which you probably know well, uh, in which he talks about the terror of that summer relating to the French Revolution. Right. And, the th you know, there were 10,000 people in the streets that were going to drag Washington out of his bed and mm -hmm. enact a revolution of government if it weren't for the yellow fever that, uh, you know, that killed all these people but also drove the, the government kind of out of the city and calmed things down in a way. That was a, that whole mixture of French yeah. and new American culture. Um, there's an argument to be made that the reason the fever started was because of the slave revolt in the Caribbean. Yeah. The ships came in. The earliest victims we know of the fever were living close to the waterfront. It was a hot and muggy summer, mm. and there were no window screens. Mm -hmm. But it was the, the, the doctors, the French-speaking doctors who had been trained in the Caribbean, who were the ones uh, who knew best how to treat the disease efficiently, as opposed, sadly, to Dr. Benjamin Rush. Yeah, that's right. Well, he had all kinds of theories. He had many <laughs> theories. <laughs> Most of them uh, fatal. Yes, well... <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, so you you uh, you claim that people don't call you a historian. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. I mean, you know your stuff. I do. I do. Yeah. So so um, so you you've been writing fiction uh, for a long time, longer mm -hmm. than historical fiction. Yes. Uh, you know, and I know, uh, you, you know, a novel that you're more famous for before the historical fiction would be Speak, right? Which is a book uh, that's used a lot in classes. Yep. I don't know if it's still used. It oh was, yeah. It it's... was used uh, certainly. Uh, I knew about it maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago for sure. There are three halves of my brain. <laughs> okay. yeah. so the first half is actually uh, picture books because I love little right. kids. Right. So I do fiction and I've done some nonfiction uh, picture books based in history. Mm. One called Independent Dames, about right. 88 women and girls who were active during the revolution. Um, and then the second half of my brain is YA novels, contemporary young adult fiction like Speak and Winter Girls. Mm. And then the third half of my brain mm. is connected to the only subject I paid attention to in school, mm. and that was social studies. Oh, good. And wow. that's my historical writing. <laughs> so wh why did you want to become a writer? Where did that come from, do you think? <sighs> Boy, I am one of those people who had a very twisting path yeah. through education. I actually uh, didn't go to college right away because mm -hmm. I didn't like school. I worked on a dairy farm in northern New York State, shoveling what comes out the Wh back end of cows. Whereabouts? North of Syracuse. Okay, so I, w I spent many years in Binghamton, New York, so I know it well. I'm familiar with central New York as well as the lower tier, but uh, no yeah. Nothing like waking up at 3.30 <laughs> in the morning in February to go and milk cows. Mm. And that taught me quickly I needed to get more education. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I got a degree from community college, uh, OCC, Onondaga Community College in Syracuse. Okay. Yeah. And then the kind people at Georgetown, somebody must have made a mistake because they offered me a scholarship. Mm. And I attended Georgetown and got a degree in linguistics. Ah, interesting. Never thought about writing. Yeah. Um, so you weren't one of these kids who was scribbling stuff down. and. Oh, I was. Yeah, oh, you I, were. Yeah. Oh, I was for fun. I, yeah. And then I, you know... Takes me a while yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I wound up becoming a journalist okay. um, and uh, working for the Philadelphia Inquirer and being a freelance writer. And mm -hmm. then as I became a mom and I was doing spending all my time writing, I thought, oh, 
how hard can it be to write for kids, right? That was the arrogant, <laughs> terrible arrogance I had. I think a lot of people feel that, and a lot of them have Ooh, their come up with. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll say. So I had a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, especially if we were living in the Philadelphia area, um, and you can't, when you're breathing in history with every step the way you do here. Yeah, place matters a lot. Oh, my goodness. It carries such energy. One of my, uh, f- I don't know if it's a frustration or maybe it's a secret worry or mm. uh, maybe it's not even a well-formed worry, but I, I do feel like uh, us East Coasters, uh, you know, when we go out West and the oldest buildings are so new, it, mm. it's just, um, yeah, I worry. I want I want the people out West to like get interested in the colonial area. And right, the, right. It's so much easier in Philadelphia. I grew up in Williamsburg, of course. Oh, nice. Or, you know, Boston and uh, harder in New York City, you know, because they've destroyed all that uh, as the city's grown. But it's there. It's there. Yeah. If you it's if you there. know where, and you know where to look. I know where to look. It's interesting. <laughs> I I just yeah. got a tweet this morning from a teacher I know who's teaching at an American school in Istanbul, Turkey. Mm. And um, and she has she knows my work. And so she had some of her students reading and she had a kid come up to her today mm. and ask her, you know, where where can we go? when my family's in the U.S. on vacation? Where can we go this summer? Mm. They're going to be visiting here in Mount Vernon. Oh, wonderful. Yes, Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Absolutely. My yes. Pleasure. Um, so so place matters. So you're in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You're 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 writing all the time as a freelance writer. You've got kids now. Right. You want to do something for kids. Right. Uh, you start with the picture books. I started and I failed miserably for years with the picture books. <laughs> yeah. um, but also in the middle of all that, it was the summer of uh, 1993. Yeah. There was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It was a museum exhibit that was put on by Coxie Toogood mm-hmm. um, and Gretchen Warden of the Mutter Museum about the epidemic. Yeah. And I okay. remember reading that article and going, wow, yeah. I'm the history nerd and I don't know about this. Mm. And I started to take the subway downtown and go to the Pennsylvania Historical Society on Locust Street, where the primary sources are. Yeah. Well, it's a great period in Philadelphia history, the 1790s. It's the capital. Mm-hmm. Right. right? Yeah. Often, sometimes forgotten, I guess, maybe not by Philadelphians, but forgotten <laughs> by everybody else. And it was the capital there, and it was a cosmopolitan, interesting, strange city, strange time, you know? I tell kids, if, if you could combine today's version of New York City, Washington, D.C., um, and Los Angeles. Hmm. So all the culture, yeah. right, the entertainment, yeah. uh, the business, yeah. and the politics, that was Philadelphia in 1793. That's that's a really great way to put it. I, I, um, I mean, nowadays, yeah, our capitals of these different aspects are so separated. Mm-hmm. This is what strikes you, I think, when you go to a place like, you know, London, right. where you have the capital that's the cultural, financial, and uh, political capital Correct. all in one. And, all these things are mingled together, and, and it's a different goes to kind the same of energy. Universities, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. weird. Yeah. We it's are a different thing. Yeah. yeah. America is different in so many ways. <laughs> We're bigger. <laughs> All <Yeah>. right. <laughs> so okay, so uh, so the yeah, there's, so the Yellow Fever book, which I'm afraid I haven't read, but I'm going to have to uh, take a look at it now. Um, but uh, and, and so after that, you you got uh, in researching that, you discovered stories about slavery in the North uh, in, in, the, in this period, and you thought that was a, an untold kind of uh, way to go. Well, really, what happened is I was at the Historical Society in Pen- of Pennsylvania on Locust Street, and yeah. I got bored the mm. way you do sometimes when you're researching, and mm. you know, stretch my legs. Mm. And I was uh, going through some materials that I hadn't seen before, and I came across an article about Benjamin Franklin. Mm. And now you have to know that Benjamin Franklin was my favorite founding dude. Mm. 
He's a guy I looked up to when I was a little kid. He's a guy I would have dated if he had gone to my high school because <laughs> he was brilliant and funny and he flirted and just, he sounds like he'd be really fun. So I looked up to him my whole life, and I was uh, in this library, and I read this more scholarly article about him. And I came across a fact that they didn't tell me in fourth grade, which was that Benjamin Franklin held people in slavery his entire adult life. Mm. And this so shocked me, and me, you know, operating in that bubble of white privilege, I didn't believe it. I had to look up the primary source material myself to see this. And, you know, we have the names. There's a wonderful article by Gary Nash. Um, that names uh, the nine people that they found evidence for. And that, I, I can't overstate how much that overturned my heart mm. and my understanding of America. And that's when I, just for my own purposes, I realized I had to research and understand this aspect. So this is kind of a, self, a journey of sort of self-rediscovery uh, or of, of your, oh, absolutely. you know, the historical uh, place of America and how it related to you and your, oh, your sense of place and, and interesting. Yeah. I love yeah. this country. I love this country. This yeah. country is the greatest experiment I can think of in world history. And when I started to delve into um, slavery during the founding era mm. and then started to look forward and see how that connects to our world today mm-hmm. and, and our lack of understanding about the wider um, circle of people who were uh, pivotal to make the the revolution happen. That's when I knew I had to write about this. Well, that's that's really uh, great, and and it, I think it comes through in the in the writing. Mm. I mean, the Thank success you. of the book speaks to this deep connection that you have with the subject matter, and and also your um, your willingness to try to bring it out in a complicated way. You know, because I think it's really easy not easy, but it's really tempting. Um, to always find kind of good guys and bad guys, and yeah. you know, in in this story of the founding era, because it is such an important part of who we are as a people. Um, but you found a way, I think, to to muddy the story in in a in a I don't know if this makes sense in a positive way, right? In a in a way that um, allows people to sort of work through it as you have been. Exactly. I yeah. I, I think one of the things that always shines out to me when I think about this is because um, we always want to give our children heroes, right? We yeah. want to lift people up who, are, who really were heroic as good m- models for our kids. Um, and if you're looking for heroes, you don't have to look any farther than the slave quarters here mm. or in any of the places in the United States. Um, we don't teach slavery in the United States. I'm trying really hard to change that. Well, it's very hard, I think, um, you know, certainly in grade school, right? And, and as you... Mm-hmm. It, and, and I think a lot of teachers, um, the reason your books are so valuable for them is they, they don't, um, it's not that they don't want to teach it, they don't know how to do it exactly. in a way exactly that they can help their students, you know, understand. And it's complicated. Yeah. Um, and parents don't understand because yeah. they didn't, they, you know, they weren't taught. I think. Um, That's right. Uh, the, the, the common. Uh, well, the t- typical American, I mean, if they know anything about the founding uh, at all. Um, you know, if you ask them about slavery, they're going to start thinking about Gone with the Wind. Or exactly. They're going to make it all a Southern thing. Right. And, you know, and they're thinking of kind of like cotton fields. Right. And, you know, and not a, you know, a 400-year trajectory, you know, with the, throughout the Atlantic world of which we're a part. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of ways you can frame it to try to understand it. But um, most people don't. 
I, I think that the, the tr traditional incorrect narrative frame is, well, there was slavery that was bad, but we fought the Civil War and yeah. the North won and boom, it's over, mm. which is so disrespectful um, to the millions of families caught up in that tragedy, um, the 400 years of enslaved Americans. Um, I think also that the popularity of Johnny Tremaine has mm. something to do with this. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, don't want to disrespect another author's work. Esther Forbes, for her time, wrote a magnificent novel in Johnny Tremaine that came out in '43, I believe. It got the Newbery in '44. Uh, but Johnny Tremaine is the, has been the stand-up, uh, the book always, you know, fifth grade teachers, seventh grade teachers reach for. Yeah. And that book ends at Lexington and Concord. Right. It doesn't teach the revolution. Yeah. It teaches that patriotic kind of black and white, good guy, bad guy approach that you often have in the beginning in the days leading up to war, um, but it doesn't go into the complexity of the conflict itself or yeah. the, the, the larger um, truth of the Continental Army. Now let's get into that a little bit. So this book, uh, Chains, is largely set in, uh, uh, sorry about that, I just no spilled a coffee all over uh, Lori's <laughs> phone. Uh, which is which is uh, something you're not supposed to do. In, I'm prepared That's in a no podcast problem. recording. No problem. Uh, so friend. back to, back to the point, yeah. the brilliant point I was trying to make. Uh, <laughs> change is set in New York City, yes. uh, largely uh, yes. in in uh, in the Revolution, in the first year of the war, at the time of uh, the Battle of Long Island, and these yeah. other things. What surprised you about uh, when you started to learn about the Revolution in New York City? You know, I, I didn't want to set it in Boston because so much of the revolutionary narrative is, is in Boston, and that's, again, the beginning of the war. And so I was like, wow, New York City seems more interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that the British controlled New York yeah. for most of the war. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean that what? I was just, my head was going, whoa. Yeah. Um, so then I, I, and I realized that if I started the book, you know, in late May, then there was these series of events. There's, right. you know, the assassination plot to kill George yeah. Washington, the hanging of the spy. Uh, the, the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence, the pulling down of the statue. Yes, that's Very right. visual, yeah. dramatic Very events. Very scene in here. Yeah. The, the statue's ah, pulled down. Yeah. It, <laughs> as you, there's a little bit, there's a nice smell of coffee in the room yeah. now. I like Sorry that. Sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> um, so, and, and then it was interesting because I knew that when I read a little bit farther into the the historical timeline because each one of my books when I'm doing the outline start with the actual events yeah. the time and the place okay and then within the parameters of you know starting in May and ending in January nice. 77 so you put you put out your chronological arc you yes. say this is a story that's going to happen between this yep. period and that period what are all the famous events going exactly. on in my location and then what are like that. what are the big scenes the big on the historical stage yeah. and what are the smaller personal scenes that i can interlock with them for yeah. my characters mm -hmm. and we're kind of making a, a a point down here and then the last thing i can figure i need to figure out is what's going on internally within my characters mm -hmm. as they react both to their personal events and the large scale events. That's the last thing you get to, but you must have an idea of what the kind of arc is of their emotional trajectory or is that real is it really more of a narrative arc about That's where they're going to be physically like from here to here to there to there. Well, I, originally when I wrote Chains, I wrote because it. Because the emotions are so vivid that you bring out. And I think that's the hardest thing in writing is, you know, to make you feel like you're in the head of a real person and not right. a fictional right. creation. Right. You know, and I think a lot of us who are more prone to pick up a nonfiction book than, uh, you know, than, than a fictional one are 
put off sometimes by heavy-handed fiction writers who sort of, right. you know, the melodramatic you know, way, and you're just like, that doesn't feel right. weird. But you, I, I think you do that really well. So I'm curious that you're, maybe you're not saying this, but it sounds like you're saying you put that stuff in last. I do. You, so you have to have your story first. Because, I mean, yeah. it, which is the exact opposite of my YA writing, by the way. Interesting. The YA writing starts with all the feels yeah. and the conflicts of characters and the narrative voice of, a, but it's a, a world that I understand really well. Yeah, and your reader also is kind of living the exactly. world. So you don't have to do all this spade work. Exactly. To bring it, you know, to, to have the material world be correct. Yes. Chains was supposed to be a standalone novel, and I knew that uh, Isabel and her sister's story began in slavery, and that the effort would be in this middle of this war that was not being fought for people who looked like her to free themselves personally. Yeah. That's what I thought I knew starting out. And then you got rid of Ruth. You didn't like her anymore. So well, you know that I got to do was it. Brutal. Yes, it is. Life was brutal. You want to talk about dystopia? Yeah. These kids lived it. I haven't read the other book, so I don't know if Ruth comes back. I'm not going to tell you. All right, I'll have to. I'll check come that back out. next year. Somebody can tweet me and tell me. <laughs> but um, uh, because that's out there, so spoiler. Oh, by the way, spoiler alert. We'll be talking about if you haven't read Chains. So yeah, you should you pause know, uh, now. Yeah, you catch should up. Uh, read the book, come back and listen to the conversation because mm-hmm. it's about to get really real up in this place. Okay. Um, all right. So um, so let's just just lay out the story arc. Right. Here. So the book opens uh, in Rhode Island um, because yeah. Rhode Island was, had, as, you know, there was a, the, the startling fact that, that hit me first right, you know, in the gut was that slavery was in the north. They didn't tell the northern yeah. kids I grew up with that. Yankees, 20, unbelievable. 20% of the population in, 17, in New York City of 1776, yeah. 20% held in slavery. That is a, a, that's a fact that so few people know now. I mean, 18th century New York is one of the largest yeah. slave-owning urban centers in, you know, in, in the Atlantic world. Right. And, uh, yeah, one-fifth yep, uh, one of fifth. the population is enslaved. So, so it's a city that, and this had been the case forever. I mean, right. New York had not been free and then no. became slave. No. It uh, was in some ways becoming more so. But uh, yeah, so that so that's a fact you're discovering, and you want to bring that story to life. Out. Okay, so that's the first kind of. Uh oh, this is going to complicate the the story. Right. All right, keep going. Um, and so then I looked at what was going on in New York City yeah. um, and the divisions between uh, uh, loyalists and patriots. Mm. And then those people in the middle who weren't quite sure yeah. sort of depended on which army was in the neighborhood, you know, in a, in a self-preservation kind of way. Yeah. So and this is because Isabel uh, is working within the household. This is necessarily a domestic kind of yeah. book. So then the second fit wrinkle then you're throwing into the traditional narratives that are sometimes told is this. Um, the muddy character of uh, loyalty, you right. know, the, the Civil War sense of it, that, you know, households are against households, people, families against families. There's there's a lot of neutral people who right. don't know right. what's the right thing to do or don't care or have, you know, other concerns like, you know, feeding themselves. And so they're not wrapped up in this stuff. And so that, I think, is, you know, that th- these kind of things need to be understood about the past because if we have the simplistic Manichaean notion about how things happen, uh, then it makes the world we live in today seem just so chaotic. You know, it's like, well, everybody doesn't fit into this nice little box today. Right. Exactly. And if you think they do, that's one reason why people can't, you know, deal with people who disagree with them. I mean, this has been the case. So I think that's a really important way to get at the revolution. 
And New York is important, too, yeah. because in Boston, at the beginning of the war, you have the British Army showing up, yeah. you know, living in people's houses, the, the Quartering Act and so forth. And then in Philadelphia, to the uh, south of New York, you later again have the British Army showing up mm -hmm. and, and, and holding it. So you have, you see Americans facing British soldiers with anger and mm -hmm. fear. Um, in New York, because the British came and stayed, yeah. that is that becomes the refugee place that becomes the place where all the loyalists gather yeah um, and and you don't have that switching back and forth that Boston Philadelphia and Charleston experience yeah yeah okay so all right so then in, in slavery in an urban setting you mentioned is a household story so that right. this is going to be right. uh, a story about people you know the dynamic within a family essentially and the historians um, I talked to um, you know I've historians vet my manuscripts and they were always very generous with helping explain things to me and mm. helping me find the right sources that um, often uh, when you have one or only one or two people held in slavery living within the family this the slaves in Abigail Smith Adams home when she was a girl the people that her father, the minister, held in slavery, Phoebe and Tom, Phoebe slept basically at the foot of the girl's bed in, in a little alcove off their bedrooms. So this is very close and intimate yeah. and leads to a different kind of understanding of slavery, sometimes a different treatment yeah. than people who owned slaves who were miles away in a plantation yeah. well, setting. And again, and again, I think that is a, yeah, we, uh, people have this sort of false sense of what slavery was. It's this big plantation with cotton. Right. And there's slave quarters, and then there's the big house. And but yeah, the intimate character of uh, life in the 18th century—I mean, servants and slaves, and daughters and, and uh, brothers, and, and the family all together in these houses. Um, yeah, it's tight quarters, and people knew each other extremely well. And it's, it's got to be—I mean, it's just hard to to uh, to imagine that today. But one of the most devastating images I came across when I was researching um, this the trilogy. Because, you know, it's, I think it's tempting, especially for um, people who don't understand this well, to go, oh, well, their lives, the enslaved people's lives weren't that bad. Right. And we never can lose sight of the fact that for people held in slavery, yes, their lives were that bad. Well, you make it clear for Isabel. Yes. I mean, uh, it's pretty rough. Exactly. It's um, some, yeah. You know, worth, especially when everyone's talking about freedom. I came yeah. across this image yeah. um, of a young girl who was held in slavery and had to wear an iron collar around her neck into which could be put a set of bells hmm. because she was in an urban area, I forget which city it was, and if she was sent out to do errands for the people who held her in slavery, she would run off. Hmm. And so they had they would lock this set of bells in into her collar to alert everybody that this is not a free black woman. This is a slave girl. Yeah. So that's always there. Yeah, yeah and I think that, uh, yeah, that is, well, we're, we're in, in trying to understand. We want to empathize, empathize, and we, you know, in some cases we want to say, "Well, that's not as bad as I thought it would be." But that again misses the whole broader, yeah. you know, cultural context of what freedom is and, and precisely uh, uh, the degradation in this situation. And you have some pretty shocking scenes in here. I think a lot of um, uh, a lot of students will be will be surprised when yes. they get to sections of the. What have you heard? The mo well, let me let me put it on you, I guess, okay. and I won't tell you what shocked me because right. I'm, I'm in some ways I'm well in many ways I'm probably not the uh, the audience for this book, being a middle-aged white man who, uh, although is a, a you know a historian, uh, you know is uh, is not the not the audience. Let's just say that that no. you have in mind when you're no. writing this. So what do you hear is the kind of the parts of the book that come out mo that most viscerally grab people. 
Um, so today's children, my readers, which usually are between fifth and eighth grade, yeah. and they read the book, uh, they're stunned at just thinking about a life without any parents at all uh, yeah, to begin right. with, right? Yeah. So at 11, 12, seven years old, mm. you're working all the time. Yeah. And you, you are basically at the whims of the person who's holding you in slavery. Yeah, so that's interesting. So they see the whole, the whole oh, yeah. the status. It's like, this is incredible. I yeah. don't have my parents. Right. I'm at the whims of some other person who doesn't really like me that much. Right. Who doesn't think I'm ever doing the right thing. I've got to deal with, i got to take care of my sister. And i got to work all the time. i got to clean stuff. i got to carry stuff around. i got to go get stuff. Because oh, yeah. I had little kids, and you know. One is in seventh grade and one is in sixth grade, and they never want to do anything. No, so, no, you know, no. I think a lot of kids are like that, and yeah. So okay, so that's interesting. So, so the, that's, and the daily life, yeah, you know, the daily, how, yeah, the you know, dailiness of it. That 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 yeah. kind of pulls kids in. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, like I said, you should have read the book before you listen to this podcast because mm-hmm. here comes the spoilers. <laughs> Uh, when uh, Isabel's uh, Isabel's responsible for her little sister Ruth, yeah. who's epileptic um, and has some cognitive challenges, although they don't ca- call them those any either of those terms in the book. Where did Ruth come from for you? I mean, how did that? How did, why did you decide to get to make a character like that? To oh, put, the, put this burden of responsibility on on Isabel for somebody else. Part of it was. Um, George Washington's family had somebody who was epileptic. Mm -hmm. And we have evidence for how that was treated in a wealthy family. And there's always been people with epilepsy and other kinds of physical um, Mm -hmm. uh, and cognitive challenges. And I thought, what did that look like back then? How would that be treated? Would it be treated? And then there was um, superstitions. And I wanted to show Isabel um, caring for somebody. Mm -hmm. I didn't want her to be totally alone. So in the book, um, her sister is sold away from her which is probably the most awful part of the immoral, sinful institution of slavery. Yeah. The, the breaking up of families. It's, and it's tough in the book because you can't, and like Isabel, you can't kind of get away from it. You know, it, no. After it happens, it, it still happened. It's, you know, it's there still there. Every day. And her absence is, is there. And that, that yeah. I think is, uh, uh, that was really powerfully done. Thank you. you. Know, in a subtle way because you could hit somebody over the head with it, but it's sort of like, Every memory she has that she wants to share or right. something, you know, with this this person. And then the, the guilt she feels about mm-hmm. her inability to kind of protect her sister. Right. Oh, it's tough stuff, Lori, tough. One of my favorite phrases, you know, and sometimes, you know, I was reading all these, every, every letter I could find, every, every t- part of writing, yeah. and this phrase came up to describe, because she's not going to say I'm depressed, because she doesn't live in 2016. Right. So Isabel talks about the bees of her melancholy mm-hmm. buzzing mm-hmm. in her head and just that overwhelming depression. Yeah. So that, so the kids really respond to that. Um, Isabel is, uh, uh, there's a scene of violence where she, um, uh, interacts with the woman who holds her in slavery and Isabel tries to run has been has spied for the Patriot Army is betrayed by them they don't follow through on their promises um, the way armies often do and then Isabel is uh, caught and branded mm-hmm. yeah the branding that's that's brutal whew. And I thought long you know I was very very mindful of my audience I think if I had been writing for an adult audience there I would have made that more graphic and there would have been other kinds of violence I think it's, but i think you know i think uh, it works i don't i don't know because i think it's in i mean the the matter of fact kind of stoic way that she's describing right. it as it's happening to her you know and then we find out we find out kind of right after that that it's you know she, it's less clear that she was aware of everything i mean because it's a longer period of time right and, and the person that gets her you know 
back, you know, recognizes that she's near death and all right. that stuff. Right. Um, I thought that was really interesting because when you're using the first person advice, you can. Um, her internal monologue is obviously she's terrified and and afraid and all those things, but we don't get the sense that she's like on the brink of, you know, death or any of that. I don't know. It's it, it's really powerful the way you do it, and then she's branded. Yeah. Just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah. They put. Yeah, I didn't like. It. They put an eye on, on, it's interesting, I was uh, talking. blame you, you did this. I did, no, and I'm just the reporter. I was speaking to a historian here yesterday who told me um, uh, of of some evidence she found that there had actually been a a teen, uh, teenager, um, young girl uh, owned by uh, George Washington on one of the farms, I don't know which farm, who during the revolution was also branded on the cheek. Mm. Um, And this this was more common in Virginia than it was up north, but certainly happened in the north as well. Um, yeah, well, the, the the corporal character of punishment, that is to say the bodies, mm. um, you know, both from the informal to the formal judicial processes are, are part of life in the 18th century in a way that, yeah. you know, is a long, uh, you know, long gone um, yeah. uh, sensibility. And the fact that she's branded in a public way, you know, in which there's an audience and all this right. stuff, and she's in the stocks. And, right. You know, you really... Do I think um, have to recognize that in many ways, you know, the 18th century the revolutionaries are closer to, I mean, they're closer to a, a medieval world than they are to the 21st century world in some ways. It's just a, it is a distant, uh, a distant country, but we all have inherited this, you know, relationship. And and, and if you think, uh, I like to tell people to think about the influence that their grandparents had on their lives. Hmm. You know, if you have grandparents, or think about what your parents learned from your grandparents. Um, and you know the family stories that are passed down. On the one hand, yes, you're right. Thank goodness that that violent history is far behind us. But the attitudes um, linger. A lot of the attitudes um, that lead to racial injustice in the United States have both feet firmly planted in this time period. Yeah, and I and I think that's the. Um, I mean, that's the power, the significance of kind of re- of telling the stories. Right. I mean, it's yeah. not. Uh, it's not a fairy tale. It's no. you know, it's real life. No. Um, uh, okay. So, uh, when did you decide that this wasn't just a single volume? That the story <laughs> would go on. That you'd get to the end and you, it wouldn't be over yet. My editor decided. Yeah. My editor is Kevin Lewis. He was also you my talk editor. About tyrannical power. Oh my goodness. I never thought of him as a tyrant. Maybe I should have. Um, he's wonderful. That's their trick. That's, that's right. Very good. I'll have to tell him that. Uh, Kevin edited some of my picture books, uh, Fever 1793 and Chains. And then he had a, he switched companies, sadly. And so I have Caitlin DeLuey is my editor for Forge and, um, and Ashes. But Kevin, when he finished reading Chains, um, like it, Kevin is a black man, too. And I think I could not have written this book without having him as my editor because of the very important conversations we had about race yeah. and him helping me understand how to dig deeper and make sure that, that I was uh, telling the story responsibly and with accurate and respectful representation. But Kevin called me up and he said, yeah, no, this you need more. Mm-hmm. The revolution keeps going for many, many years. You need to write more books about this. So he convinced me that it had to be the trilogy. Mm-hmm. So I actually went back into that version of the story that he had in earlier draft and opened up the, the arc of the ending okay. um, yeah. so that then that leads to Forge uh, mm-hmm. and then later Ashes. Well, uh, I, I, you know, I think that... Uh, I don't have to tell you that the book is a great success because you know that, and it, you know it's been a great success with so many different audiences. But 
you know, as somebody who knows the 18th century very well and, uh, you know, has taught undergrads for a long time, I mean, this is a book that it would be so helpful if uh, people read this book before they got to college <laughs> classes um, because their sensibilities would be right. tuned up right. to a, a level that would allow you to kind of really get at the grist and the meat of the, of the history. You. So I think that's, I mean, that's incredible success for historical fiction from my perspective. Um, that it prepares people to really, you know, mm-hmm. uh, understand. Thank you. Uh, um, what are, uh, now, the, the book is popular, teachers love you. Um, w- w- how does that work with the trilogy? How, they can only use so many books in a classroom. I mean, how do they do it? I don't know. Teachers are amazing. They're mm-hmm. miracle workers. I mean, um, if I got to be the boss of the world, I mean, everybody would be reading the whole thing, but that's <laughs> the whole trilogy, but that's probably unrealistic. I do know many teachers or will, will teach chains. That's been out the longest. Um, yeah. I know that's been adopted in curriculum in New York City and mm-hmm. bigger school districts now. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And then they'll have Forge and now Ashes on the shelves for free yeah. reading afterwards. That's or good. I've seen teachers will uh, give their students a choice of which book to read. Uh, and then they have, because, you know, in classrooms where the students, you know, then the kids get to book talk the other books to each other and reflect on the larger themes as represented in each book of, free, of freedom and friendship and, and uh, things like that. The Forge is sold from Curzon's point of view. Yeah, because Chains was a domestic book, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to write. Uh, I didn't want to. I wanted to write a military book. I wanted to write a book from the soldiers' perspective. Mm-hmm. And while there were a very small handful or fingers, a couple of women who dressed as men in right. order to fight, I didn't want to put that 21st century sensibility. That would have been. All, yeah, that yeah, would have been over a big the top. Leap. Yeah, and and um, and no. Over Samson. Yeah, that's been done. Others, you know. Yeah. I was been done. Yeah. yeah, I was more interested in when I found the primary source. I think it's Anthony Scamell's mm. um, uh, roster in June of 1778, as they're getting ready to leave Valley Forge, yeah. that show us that 10 percent of that army was men of color, mm. and I went, "What? They didn't tell me that either." <laughs> so um, that's when I started digging into um, into Valley Forge because that's where the band of brothers is really forged those hardships, and that's when our army is. Poor young men. Yeah, um, well, the ones so. who couldn't get go and didn't have where else to go. That's right. Down. That's right. And George Washington and George Washington. Yeah, there you go. I, well, I think that that. Um, I mean, not to talk about Big George, but that's what we do here. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that experience was powerful in in his, you know, rethinking you know the the nature of slavery and race. Absolutely. And the future of America, and, and you know, the service of the of blacks and his army you know, had a powerful influence, I think, on, you know, the changing yeah. attitudes that we see him finally expressing in the 1780s. You know. And I think, you know, by the time the army marches out uh, of Yorktown a couple yeah. of years later at the end of Ashes, um, the estimates vary a little bit for 20 to 25 percent is what I've heard mm. um, of, of the Continental Army at that point, because you have the first Rhode Island. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you also have every other unit is integrated. Last time we're integrated until the 1950s, right. by the way. That's right. But I, th- I think what is less measurable, we can measure uh, President Washington's response because of the writings he left us. But when you think yeah. about all of the white men who served with these black men and men of Native American nations, and the friendships that are forged in foxholes. I think as you're looking at the gradual abolition in the North in the years uh, after the revolution, those friendships had a huge impact. I think you're right. I mean, I think that makes sense to me uh, because that generation is the generation of real opportunity when it comes to kind of the 
um, the potential of, of the gradual emancipations right. in the North, well, the immediate emancipations in Massachusetts and, 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 uh, and New Hampshire and in Vermont, of course, with the Constitution, but then the gradual right. bills in the North, um, you know, and that momentum dries up pretty, yeah. pretty much by 1803, 1804, you know, five. So there is that kind of generational sensibility, perhaps, uh, the free black popula population population faster rate than the enslaved population mm -hmm. for the first time right. ever in that period from 1782 to 1806 or so. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. Um, there's also, there's so. also a, a theory that's been floated. Um, I refer to it in the end of Ashes in one of the, in the nonfiction uh, part of the back of my book. Yeah, the no, I love those. Those are great. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, those are fun. So the back of all these books, for those of you who don't know, there's, a, there's kind of questions of which you have people. And I love the, the voice that you put the questioner in because it's sort of like a kid's yeah. voice, uh, you know, asking you. And there's this one here. Uh, so after, there's one of these questions. So here's one. Why don't we hear much about the revolution in New York City? What was the city like back then? Uh, and then Laura gives a really nice kind of talking about population, density, and all this kind of stuff. And then the next question after that is, are you sure there were slaves in New York back then? I, I yeah. love that. Yeah. The way that, uh, they, you know, the questioners, not, they're not quite convinced right, yet. Right. After that's all a, they've read. That's 11-year-old me going, <laughs> yeah. I need you to it's approve like, this to me. Yeah, I don't know if you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, which is, I, think I get good. that a lot. Yeah. At the end of Ashes, um, I, I think it might be the historian Alan Taylor, um, and as well as Ray Raphael, who are speculating now um, based on everything they know, which is a lot, um, that more enslaved people freed themselves during and immediately after the American Revolution than were freed um, because they ran during the years of the Underground Railroad. Mm. That they're, they're calling yeah. this the largest exodus. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you've got, yeah, you've got th 10,000 in Massachusetts, uh, but yeah, the. The running away the running, and the yeah. running to running uh, to uh, it, it's a it's a moment of it's a moment of emancipation. I mean that's what so the 1780s and 1790s after the war, as you know from your fever book. I mean they they are really confusing, interesting yeah. period. You know where you know you still have the, a lot of these mores from the colonial period, but you're kind of rushing towards this you know crazy wild democratic kind of version that you get in the 19th century. Um, but it's not clear at all, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what's going to happen. So, um, yeah, I mean, even with an institution like slavery, where a lot of people in the 1780s can imagine that it will go away. Right. But it right. doesn't. No. Know, so, no. Yeah, fascinating. So the last book ends with your, the Yorktown campaign. And yeah, the, that was, and, uh, and if you're York. you're from the area, you're very familiar with that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that was, uh, you know, and I, I, I lost a year's worth of work because originally I was going to set Ashes in Charleston. Um, but then when I found out some of the regulations when the British invaded and took over Charleston there, mm. some of the regulations they had for enslaved people, they actually had badges that they had to wear, which makes one think of the gold stars of the, yeah. the Nazi time period in Europe. Um, it just the plot that I had laid out wasn't going to work, so I checked that. Yeah. My editor wasn't very happy, but we started <laughs> over again and, um, and looked at the experience on the peninsula with Williamsburg and then Yorktown, which was mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing yeah. and you have that moment at the end there when you know the war's not over um, uh, we think that everybody thinks they know what's going to happen but then you know clearly I need to write some more books mm. to, to look at what happened but uh, it was 
it took a long time to figure out how to strike the balance between the reality for the the men and women of color who had served with the army at the end of this war um, and and the limited choices they were offered yeah. um, and not wanting to make everything happy and tied up with a nice Hollywood bow on it. Yeah. So I, I worked hard on that one. Well, speaking of Hollywood, is there interest in uh, one of these books yeah. for a movie? There mm, must be. A tiny little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if Miss Oprah Winfrey's listening, um, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I would take that phone call in a heartbeat. Um, I, I think this is an important story. I would like to well, see the it. The first one's very cinematic. I can, yeah. you know, I can imagine the book being done. But it shouldn't be a yeah. film. Yeah. There's too much. I, it needs to be, I think, an HBO series. Mm-hmm. 10, 12 episodes. 10, 12 episodes. It's a long war. Yeah. It's eight years, man. That's, that's a, a long time. It's a big story to tell. It is a big story. Yeah. It is a big story. Well, good. I like that you're thinking big. Got to think uh, big. You know, there's not, it's so frustrating, I think, for some you know, people who are really into this time period because there's no great movie, really, of the American Revolution. And can we say for the record, I'm sure you said it, before in this in this uh, podcast, but the Patriot movie is terrible. Well, it, horrible. Yeah, it, it has its challenges. The uh, <laughs> no, it sucks. The employed uh, the employed workers of uh, yeah. Mel Gibson. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's dreadful. Yeah, from from uh, yeah, and and so the um, you know, the violent the character the violence the way it's portrayed. Yeah, that's no, it's not good. No, we can't use that. But one. I mean, neither is that Al Pacino movie. I mean, called Revolution. You know, with yeah. which he's like this. You know, he, he's the working class guy in Boston, and all of a sudden he's out in the woods, and it's just bizarre. It's right. just bizarre. So you're like, why, why can't we? I mean, the French make all these brilliant films, not all of which are uh, similarly, you know, they're challenged hist- historically, but it's such an important part of French film to do the French Revolution and right. Napoleon right. and all this stuff. Right. There's so many of them. And the American Revolution just gets such short uh, shrift. Although, comma, pause, she said, um, we can now talk about my favorite contemporary American, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, yes. And well, his of course. brilliant, yeah. brilliant mm-hmm. musical Hamilton, which um, has opened up a lot of eyes to what an amazing story this is. Yeah. Um, uh, I know teachers are already using some of his songs, the clean versions of them, um, with uh, in teaching my books yeah. because obviously we're touching on the same, you know, Yorktown and, and oh, yeah, New yeah. York City. Well, and, and you're including characters that he doesn't have in the musical. Precisely. So, so that's a I nice touch. I think we'd touch. make a good team, don't you? <laughs> I think you would. I yeah. mean, that's great. Now, uh, so the Mount Vernon gave the Hamilton musical a uh, the George Washington Book Prize, a special edition of it, um, because we're we're in the um, in the constitution of that prize, we can give it to other forms of media. Oh, but nice. none had ever been submitted. Right. And uh, we decided because it was such a unique you know, transformative way to get people excited about the revolution because right. it was based on, you know, research. And, and it was, uh, in that sense, he was trying to, you know, draw out the history using primary sources even in it that it was, um, you know, it was something that we wanted to support. But, of course, we announced our award. I think uh, the, our, our announcement came like five days after he got the MacArthur Genius Award. Oh, jeez. <laughs> like, oh, that's well. not, because you know, we wanted to help, right. it, help right. it along, right. help this little... Yeah, they didn't need us. <laughs> I, I, I rewatched the um, yeah. the PBS documentary about Hamilton before I came down here. Yeah, good. Um, it's and and the the interview with Chris Jackson, the artist who played General yeah, Washington, Washington yeah. um, and on the first original Broadway run, and and they filmed him here mm-hmm. at Mount Vernon. Yeah, he came here. He laid a wreath at the tomb of yeah. Washington and uh, spent a lot of time with Mary Thompson and our curator right, right. Uh, Susan Shoalworth as well. Although they were cut. 
from the production. Is, so they need to make an extended version of that. <laughs> I'll, make, I'll write a letter to PBS along with floor. my tote bag document. Yeah. You know, uh, but 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 Mr. Jackson talked very um, movingly, very eloquently about being a Black American playing the role of George Washington yeah. and then standing here in Mount Vernon and that that tension. Mm-hmm. That um, that we have to acknowledge um, before we can fulfill our destiny. I think as a yeah. nation. Yeah, and I think that um, he he spoke very powerfully about that. And uh, but he it, but he's also been very um, he's been very interested in doing the research about the character Washington. He went beyond the script. He read Chernow's biography of mm-hmm. Washington. You know he's. Continue to correspond with Ron about you know uh, questions he had about Washington that sort of thing. So that's um, that's a smart artist when, right there. When we went, uh, Mount Vernon brought a uh, hundred or so of our uh, great supporters up to watch the play in New York City. He came out afterward and spoke to oh, that's the wonderful. group, the Mount Vernon group, about you know um, you know how um, yeah how he felt you know his responsibility of playing Washington was an important one. And, and so I, I uh, you know, I think that he, he definitely embodies that uh, that spirit of, um, you know, of civic duty, and and uh, and we we really like him. I think he's great, you know. And I think that I haven't when seen the new one. I'm sure he's great too. But well, I, I I'm sure, been, but you know. that was that bar was set pretty high by Chris Jackson. Yeah, well, he's I, got the voice. He does <laughs> have the voice. My goodness. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that 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 the popularity of the musical and that energy that's coming to the American Revolution yeah. that has periodically yeah. we've seen in the states that maybe somebody at HBO yeah. um, they, this is this is their next project. I would, I would think they. I mean, yeah. I mean, I would think they'd be looking for things that would be simpatico with the popularity of the Hamilton play, and your work certainly would be. Right. Uh, with the right creative mind behind it, I think. Have you ever dabbled in the film world? Have you written scripts? Um, I had to speak. My first uh, YA uh, contemporary right. novel yeah, yeah, was yeah. turned into a movie, um, a television movie. Uh, Showtime put it okay. on in, in yeah. 2003. Melinda Stewart, uh, Melissa Stewart, no, Melinda Stewart was the um, the actress. She was oh, a young great. actress. Yeah. She did such a good job. Mm. Um, but I didn't have anything to do with the screenplay because okay. I was working mm. on a novel. Um, with this project, I mean, this project would not leave my hands or uh, unless it came with ironclad guarantees of uh, casting yeah. and, um, and and a, a creative crew directing and producing um, people of color, people who understand. We, we just cannot have another whitewashed version of American history. Mm. Uh, well, there you have it, Hollywood. If you want to work with Lori Hall Sanderson, you know her terms. Ava DuVernay. <laughs> Uh, she can be the producer. There's a lot of incredibly talented people. In well, I, I would like to see it uh, on, on, on some kind of screen of whatever size. Ten, ten episodes would be better than, than less, I'm sure. But uh, I would wish you uh, well with that. What is the next project that you're working on right now? Um, I'm going to write a nonfiction companion book to the trilogy. Oh, great. To expand on, on the with information. The, it, with the audience's uh, teacher students, both? Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. You know, okay. probably glossaries would, would, and uh, questions and questions. The narrative would probably be written for my middle grade readers, mm-hmm. but with sidebars with deeper, more academic kind of work. Oh, great! Um, and then I, I, I have to write a picture book about Abigail Adams. I owe my publisher that one. And okay. being here, I have like a dozen ideas of oh, other great. books. Well, let me know if you ever want to come back and do research in the library. You're always welcome. Certainly. It's not if, it's when. Oh, good. Well, and then. 
then it'll be a matter of when. All right, okay, we'll, we'll this happen. Thank you so much for sitting down with me this morning. We've already gone for 50 minutes. No, uh, we haven't. We have. Oh, my goodness. 60, oh, Doug. Uh, 61. No, 50, 61. Oh, I'm so. sorry. With a little coffee spilled, but no. Just a little bit. No, uh, no bones broken other than that. So. <laughs> this is wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, and uh, we look forward to seeing you tonight. Yes, right. sir. Absolutely. So, all right. Thanks, guys. Bye. -bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org/library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.